Amen, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Glad you're here this morning. So just just so you know, uh, the the words, the feedback I got from this morning's sermon was, this is the best sermon I've ever preached. And so you're in for a treat. Just saying. Just be ready. You'll, 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 you'll know that. You'll, you'll, it'll, it'll make more sense in just a minute. But truly, that's what I was told. So I'm just, I'm not lying. I'm not making that up. So we're in John chapter, not John, sorry. (laughs) Maybe we should start over. (laughs) We're in Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. Uh, We're going to be walking through that passage today. I'd encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bible there. As you are, let me just kind of bring us into the context, remind us of what's going on. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. When he went in, he goes into the temple, and he upends the flow of events in the temple. Like, he just set it on end. Uh, He drove out the people who were there selling and cheating the people of Israel, and and then he begins teaching and preaching. He's coming into the temple every day, this last week of his life, coming every day to teach and preach the gospel in the temple. Now, obviously, this has enraged the leaders of the day, the, the Jewish leadership. The, the Sanhedrin, they were just, man, they were angry and they wanted Jesus dead. They wanted him out of their life. They wanted to do whatever was necessary, not just to get him out of the temple so that they could have their temple back, but so that they could just be rid of him altogether. At the heart of the issue was their rejection of his identity and then the rejection of his authority because they wouldn't accept him as the prophet that had been promised back all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18 because they wouldn't accept him as the prompt the promised prophet because they wouldn't recognize him as the the king that had come just I mean just a week before just at the beginning I'm sorry just at the beginning of this week in which we're now studying Jesus's life they were they they, they received him he enters in and they're They're recognizing him, proclaiming him to be king, but the leadership has nothing to do with this. They are not going to admit, they're not going to receive him as king at all. And and as he comes into the temple and expresses his authority over the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and demonstrates that he's the true high priest before God, they were not going to have anything to do with that. He demonstrated it all. He showed it all, but they couldn't stand it. They, were, they, they weren't just resisting him any longer. They were flat out rejecting him. That rejection would move to its ultimate place, its ultimate end, at the end of this week when they were, would have him crucified. They wouldn't accept him. They wouldn't receive him. And, and then he comes into their temple, into their house, as they see it, and he teaches a story. He teaches a parable. This is a passage we studied last week. He teaches a parable that, that demonstrates that he is the vineyard owner's son. And they recognize the vineyard owner to be God. He makes a claim to be God's son, come to do God's work. He is the Messiah. They weren't going to believe him. They weren't going to receive him. They weren't going to listen to him. And because they wouldn't, they wouldn't know him. They could only reject him. They, they, they couldn't submit to his authority. So they're trying everything they can to get rid of him, trying to jettison Jesus, if you will, from their lives. Truth is, this is really how we've all, at some point or other, responded to God. And this is the whole world's response to him to, and to his son coming into the world. <clears throat> The world likes Jesus so long as he doesn't interfere with their hopes and dreams. Like as long as he doesn't give me too much direction on what my hopes and dreams are, like, you know, 
I'm the one going to choose what I do for a living. I'm going to be the one who sets up my life for retirement. I'm going to be the one that makes the choices over my life. I'm going to decide what I hope in and what I love most. As long as he doesn't mess with that, Jesus is just okay, man, right? As long as Jesus comes and he goes along with everything we want, everything we desire, doesn't make any demands, well, man, we're pretty happy with Jesus. So the world likes Jesus so long as he does what they want him to or expect him to. See, the problem that these Jewish leaders had with Jesus wasn't because, wasn't because he was going around healing people. Actually, that would have been great. It would have been amazing. They would have appreciated him healing people and keeping his mouth shut. They, they would have appreciated him going around being compassionate and tenderhearted and, and being a nice guy just so long as he kept his mouth shut. But he actually had demonstrated that they didn't have the authority that they said they did, nor did they exercise the authority that they did have in the way God intended it. So as long as Jesus did what they wanted him to, the world will like Jesus. As long as, as long as Jesus does what we expect him to, the world likes Jesus. They'll, they'll accept Jesus. They'll be all about Jesus. As long as Jesus doesn't come expecting anything of us, expecting anything that would be inconvenient, Expecting anything that would cost us something. Expecting anything that doesn't really make us feel good. Here's the problem. Jesus came to these people and he didn't keep his mouth shut. He came to these people and he, and he did heal these people. He did heal masses and masses of people. In fact, just to, just, it, it's in John's gospel, but just a week or so before he enters Jerusalem... He goes to his friends, Mary and Martha, whose brother had gotten sick and then died. And Jesus goes to his tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man rises up, comes out of the tomb, and is alive. And they're like, whoa, he, what, what just happened? And, and so many people saw it. This is two miles away from Jerusalem. So many people saw it that the people began to believe in Jesus. And these leaders, oh man, they got threatened. They didn't just want to kill Jesus. They wanted to kill the evidence that Jesus had power to raise somebody from the dead. They wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Because the things he said, his whole ministry was a call to pick up their cross and follow him, to deny themselves and follow him, to lose this life that we might gain the life that he's offering in the gospel. See, this is the tone of Jesus' message, is to give this up so that we might gain him. He didn't keep his mouth shut. He didn't come with no expectation. He didn't come with, without commands. He didn't come calling us to something that was just simply convenient. He came calling people to a physical death that they might have a spiritual life. See, the world is all fine and good with Jesus. Sometimes we're all fine and good with Jesus. So long as we get to command him rather than him command us. See, we want the blessing of knowing him. We want the blessing of knowing Jesus without the responsibility of following Jesus. And so just like these Jewish leaders... 
Well, we begin to ask questions and we begin to seek ways to kind of jettison Jesus out of that place in our lives. Does he really have the right? Does he really have the authority to come in and tell me how I should live day in and day out? Does he have, does he have the right to tell us who should and shouldn't be married? Like, does he really have the right to, to determine that marriage should be between a man and a woman? Does he really have the right that se- to, to say that sex should be inside of marriage and not outside? Does, does he really have the right to exercise authority over our money? Does he really have the right to tell me how I should spend my time and my energy? Who does he think he is? Does he really have the right to tell anyone Shouldn't he just be here doing what we want him to do? Healing our people, making us well, ending our suffering, making our life easy and convenient. Shouldn't Jesus just be doing that and keeping his mouth shut? Does he really have the right? Short answer is yes. But that's not a sermon, so there's more to come. Because really the text that we're going to study, that, that... the text that, that is before us really digs down in the depths of that question and gives us the answer, yes. Yes, he does. Now let's read it. I don't want you to take my word for it. Uh, honestly, uh, my word's not worth much, um, but his, his is the word that works. So let's read it. Beginning in verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived he had told this parable against them. That's the the parable, the story of where Jesus is the vineyard owner's son. The servants were the prophets sent to Jesus, right? Or or some, sorry, sent to Israel and yet rejected. And, And the wicked tenants are the chief priests, the elders and the scribes that were supposed to be exercising authority and it, for the good of God's people and for the glory of God, but they were doing it for selfish means. He told that parable against them and they were angry. They wanted to rid themselves of Jesus. They wanted to lay hands on him that very hour, but they feared the people. So, so, he watched, or so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Let me just set the stage. Let me just help you see what's about to to take place. Pull it all in together. So here here are these chief priests, these elders, these scribes. They're angry. Jesus has been confronting them. He's been overruling them, overriding their authority over and over and over. Day in, day out, he's going into the temple and he is preaching a message that is is enraging them because it removes them from authority. And every time they step in, every time they try to confront him and they try to exercise authority over him, Jesus puts them in their place. He has unseated them as the leaders of Israel. He has removed any authority they have at all. Yet they don't see it. And so they continue to try to exercise their authority. And they want to lay hands on him, but they are afraid. The people were beginning to believe Jesus. They were, they were beginning to hear what he was saying. They were, they were beginning to, to trust his words. They were seeing his works. Dead people up walking around. That's a, that's a huge testimony. Like, I don't know anybody else that can do that. I don't know anybody else that walks up to a tomb and calls a dead person out. I don't know anybody else that has the power just to walk up and in a moment's notice make lame people stand up and walk, blind people see, deaf people hear. 
There's certainly a lot of people that put on shows and, oh, I got low back pain. Boom, you're healed. Oh, yeah, I am. That leave I took earlier must have finally kicked in. We can fake all kinds of things, but nobody had the authority to do what Jesus was doing. I don't know anybody else that could. And, and the people were loving it. They were eating it up. They had received him as their king, and they were flocking around him as he preached and taught the gospel in the temple. And these, 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 these chief priests, these scribes, these elders, they were, they were enraged, and they were doing everything they could. They wanted to lay hands on him that very hour, but they were afraid. So they came up with this idea. We're going to put some people secretly among his followers. We're going to send some people in to pretend that they're his followers. And they'll report back to us. And, and, and it won't be us this time. They're going to be listening for something particular. They're going to listen for something that puts Jesus against the Roman authority. They're going to listen to see, oh, Jesus is king? Oh, he believes he's the king? Well, hey, Caesar's the king. All of a sudden, this guy isn't just a, a blasphemer in their eyes, but in Rome's eyes... He's, he's, a, he's a rebel. Rome's not, they're not going to put up with this. And so they put people among, they put spies among his followers to listen to him, to watch for him to say something. See, these spies, they, they put on a show, they put on an act to try to get close to Jesus, to try to fool Jesus, to try to get to a place where Jesus would let his guard down and he would say something that they could then use because they were too cowardly. They, 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 they were so angry that they wanted to be rid of Jesus, but they were too cowardly to do something because they knew if they did, the people would kill them, the people would stone them because they had begun to believe Jesus. So they sent these spies and they said, you know what? We'll make him an enemy of the state. We'll, 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 we'll demonstrate to, to Rome that he is an enemy of the state and, and he'll say something that we'll bring to Pilate and Pilate will have to do something and suddenly we'll get what we want and we won't be responsible for it. We can blame the Romans. And so they send these spies in and these spies put on a, an appearance of righteousness, an appearance of following Jesus, but they don't truly follow him. Now, here's the thing. Is, 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 this is a reality here. This is, I mean, this, this is just a good practical lesson. Appearances aren't always what they seem, right? I mean, there's a reality that what's on the outside, if it doesn't match on what's on the inside, then, then, then that appearance is, is a lie. It's false. It's, it's empty. And that's what, exactly what these spies are doing. They're sent in to see Jesus, but they're just simply, simply putting on appearances. They're putting on a show. And they're satisfied with that appearance. They're satisfied with just being an appearance of, 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 of righteousness or an appearance of following Christ. But, but, but the problem is that's not enough. It's not enough. It's not enough for them and it's not enough for you and for me. I mean, we, we tend to do this, right? Put on appearances. We're going to, going, to, going to church regularly. Doing doing churchy things like reading Christian books. Oh, I don't, I don't read in a, none of that garbage. That, unless it's a Christian author that's writing an allegory, I just won't read it, right? Only Christian books for me. Uh, they listen to Christian radio. Oh, man, I am not listening to that filth that came out of the 70s and 80s anymore. I don't know what, for me, it was 70s and 80s. That, that, it's just Christian radio, Christian podcasts. Only Christian podcasts for me. 
We don't just listen to Christian podcasts. We actually start Christian podcasts, right? Because like, we like to sit around and talk about Christian things. I'm not going to go to any coffee shop. That's not, you know, if it's not named Hebrews or, fresh, or, or not Fresh Grounds, Holy Grounds or something like that, not going to find me drinking no Starbucks of sinners drinking that unholy coffee. As long as the appearance is there, right? I mean, it's what matters. As long as we keep up appearances. Going to avoid all those bad places, places those bad people go. Don't want anybody to find me in a restaurant that serves alcohol. Boy, if somebody sees me in there, they might think that I approve of alcohol. See, these, these appearances, they, they may demonstrate something on the outside. But they don't re, re, really mean anything about what's on the inside. Lots of people put on a show. These spies were putting on a show. Now, I'm not saying that these things are bad. If you want to just listen to Christian radio, please, by all means, just listen to Christian radio. I think it's glorifying to God. If you just want to go to Christian coffee shops, by all means, but don't do it as an appearance. Do it as, as something that's motivated deep inside of you. You want to start a Christian podcast? You want to sit in and talk on a Christian podcast? Please do it. But don't do it as, a, as, a, as, a, as an appearance, as, as a way to just put on some clothes on the outside if it's not happening on the inside. That appearance is not enough. And, 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 and exactly what happens is that Jesus sees below that. Jesus sees these spies and, and he knows that they're spies. He knows that, that the appearance on the surface is not exactly what was happening in their heart. He knew the motive that was moving them to interact among his followers was as empty and, 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 and uh, um, useless as possible. Their hearts were against him. He knew what they were doing. But those spies were there. And they were there for a reason because they wanted to trip him up. They wanted to catch him so that they could send him over to the Romans to be dealt with. Pick it up in verse 21. It says, so they asked him. So here are the spies. They, they're there, and they're not hearing anything. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but teach the way of God. It, it, is it lawful? So, so they move from this place of saying these words that are very flattering to Jesus. Like they make, they, they would make most of us just, whoo, man, that, you like me. I, I want to, but remember, this is an appearance thing. This is, this is them putting on falsehood, fake, a, a fake identity. It, it, but, but they come and they ask this question, followed, following this flattery. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness. And said to them, well, before we get to the answer, let me just, let's just point this out again. Let's just make sure you see it. They come as spies. They come with, with, with a fake or a true agenda covered up by, by a false appearance. They come and then they, they enter into this conversation with him and they start with these flattering words. You teach truth. We love what you say. You are amazing. And then they ask a question. The question is not fake, though. Question's actually a real question they would have struggled with in that day. The question, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? We, we, deal, we struggle with questions like this today still. Should the government that, that wants to fund abortion have any right to my taxes? Should a government that, that would fund abortion or give 
uh, 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 birth control to, to teens or do things that I don't agree with? Do they have a right to tax me? Do I have a, do, do I, am I responsible to pay them? Could the government actually come in and command me as a person in the clergy? Could they come in and command me to officiate same-sex weddings? Does the government have the authority to, to expect something from its people? And do the people have a responsibility even to a government that they, wouldn't, that they wouldn't say is righteous, that they wouldn't say is necessarily good? Do people have a, a, a responsibility to respond to their government? You've got to remember that the Jews were not happy about being ruled by Rome. Most of the people that were eating Jesus' teaching up were excited because they thought he was going to be the king that was about to establish them as, a, as an independent nation and remove Rome's reign. They, totally, they, they didn't have a right Christology. They didn't have a right perspective of his mission at that time. But they were looking for Jesus to do this. They were excited about Jesus because they expected this. They did not want to be ruled by Rome because they saw Rome as, a, as, 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 as an oppressor, as someone who was evil. Does Caesar really have a right to expect this? And do we have a responsibility to do what he commands? These are real questions. Just given under a false presupposition, under a false agenda. See, Jesus knows, though. And just, to get, just, just, just again, a little more on the appearances. Like, you're not fooling Jesus, right? If, 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 if you're putting on a show... If you're here today and it's just to keep up appearances, man, you might fool the people sitting in the room. You're not fooling anybody. You're not fooling him. He knows what's going on, just like he knew what was going on in these, in these spies. He knew that there was more to the question. He knew it was a trap, and he says to them, verse 24, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Jesus knew this was a trap. He knew that, there, that the motive that posed this question was, was catching him. But he also knew, man, what he knew more than just that being a trap is he knew that their motives, are not their motives, but their logic was flawed. Our inconsistent fallen thought is always going to fall in front of Christ. Our inconsistent ability apart from God is always going to stumble when brought against the wisdom of God. These, these spies, they, they, they pose their question as an either or. It's either Caesar or God. Yes, Caesar or no Caesar. Yes, God or no God. You tell us what we're supposed to do. <laughs> but Jesus' answer presents to them that that their question isn't a yes or no question. It's not an either or situation. It's a both and. See, they, they thought that they would be either siding with Caesar and against God or with God and against Caesar. But Jesus showed them that to align themselves with God was to submit under the rule of Caesar. He does this really by calling for a denarius. 
A denarius is a, is a coin that, that would have been used in the Roman government, meant, pressed usually out of silver. Um, and it was, it was the basic common currency, kind of like a dollar bill for us uh, is our basic common currency. This would have been the basic common currency of the day. He says, give me a denarius. And so, so they pull out a denarius and he says, whose image is on that? See, what Jesus does in, in this is he demonstrates that because the image of Caesar is on the denarius, that he has some right, some authority, some ownership over that coin. Whose image is on it? Caesar's. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You see, one of the, one of the things is, is that the, by... by by, by spreading that money around, by, by every time a, uh, someone would take the seat and a new Caesar would kind of take the throne and re-raise up, and every time a new emperor would be put in place, he'd have coins printed, or, or, or yeah, printed, cut, basically, that, that, that would have his image on it, and they would distribute them throughout all of the Roman uh, territories. And what that demonstrated was that there was already an authority of, of Rome over these people. Jerusalem as much as they hated it, by using that money was already attributing responsibility to Rome. They were already attributing authority of Rome over them simply by using their money. And, and, and Jesus is saying, hey, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. His image demonstrates authority. His image demonstrates responsibility. And if he ended his answer there, that would be, it would be surprising. And, and, and we would say, okay, well, this is a political statement. But it's much more than a political statement. It's so much bigger than just a political statement. Because he goes on from his, our responsibility to Caesar, or these Jews' responsibility to Caesar, and he turns that around and he says, now, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. This is an argument from lesser to greater. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar has every right to expect to impose a tribute or a tax. He has every right to tell you to give him his money back for you to demonstrate some allegiance to him because his image is on the money you spend. But whose image is on Caesar? More pointedly, whose image is on these spies who under false pretenses are asking this question. See, Caesar may deserve a tribute because his image is on the coin. But God deserves our whole life because his image is on us. And by falling silent, by falling silent and not falling on their knees in praise and worship. These spies just demonstrate their ongoing rejection and rebellion against Jesus' authority. Incidentally, just so you know the rest of the story, we'll get there eventually uh, sometime next year, Luke chapter 23, when Jesus finally is brought before Pilate, when they finally get things together and he's finally brought before Pilate, Luke chapter 23, verse 2. It says, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. The very thing they're asking about here is the thing they're going to lie about later. 
right? Jesus, Jesus shows them the truth. And, and, and since they can't catch him, they got to lie about him. He, he refuses to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Everybody wants the blessing of, of knowing Jesus without the responsibility of following Jesus. As real as it was then, it's still real today. But listen, this, this, some, some commentators, some preachers, some pastors, they'll, they'll talk to you about this is the most powerful political statement. I, I, think, I think that there are political implications, but I think that this statement is so much more than just a political statement. I think it bears so much more weight. Bearing God's image affirms God's ownership of all people and makes all people responsible to him. The spies that are standing there questioning Jesus are owned by Jesus. And they are responsible to Jesus. The Jewish leadership that sent these spies to, to trip up and catch Jesus are owned by Jesus. And responsible to Jesus. The Caesar that they're, that they're trying, to, trying to figure out, do we pay a tribute to him or not? Is owned by Jesus and responsible to Jesus. Bearing God's image affirms God's ownership of all people and makes all people responsible to him. And this ownership is complete. There's not an aspect of our life that doesn't, doesn't fit somewhere in this. It's not like we have a compartment that belongs to God and we get the rest. Well, I'm going to give him 10% of myself and keep the other 90% for me. He gets Sunday for a couple hours. You know, two hours is really too long. If a service goes two hours, then, then probably I'm going to go find another church that gives me about 45 minutes. I need about 45 minutes of Jesus on Sunday so that I got the rest of that time to spend on doing whatever I want to do. Right? There is no aspect of our life that this doesn't have implication for. But that implication is a reality that ownership starts with God and responsibility is to God. We are created in his image. God created mankind in his own image. This isn't something that these people wouldn't have been familiar with. They loved the scriptures. They loved his word. They were studied in it. They knew it. And in the first five books, the Pentateuch, that was their bread and butter, man. They knew the Pentateuch. There was the books of law. And these people knew it inside and out. And at the very beginning of the very first book of the Pentateuch, Genesis, chapter 1, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and over, and, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The beauty of this, this is, this is so spectacular. So spectacular. The God who said, let there be light <laughs> when, when nothing else was bearing light. And he says, let there be light. And light can't help but begin to shine. The God who looks at the seas and the waters and says, you stop right there that the ground might come forth. That God 
The God who drew the mountains up out of the level ground and who put majestic snow caps on top of the mountains. The God who pressed down the valleys between the mountains. The God who holds all things together by his word. That God said, let us make man in our image. You are a reflection of the creator who holds all things by his word. You are a picture of him on the earth. He says, you will not create an image of me, but I will create one and put my image in him and her. And it's not just men. You see, men, we're standing up. I'm created in the image of God. So is the woman sitting next to you. Together we hold his image. This eternal, magnificent, glorious creator says, I'm going to create of people. I'm going to make a creature and I'm going to put my image in him. Oh, what does that mean? Like, I, uh, theo- theologians like wrestle with this. They grapple with this. They, they fight hard to understand it. Like, what does this mean? How do we describe it? How do we understand it? Like, what is this? How, how do we think about it? I've read a lot about this and, and not just this week, but this is some time as I've begun to, to, to think about who I am. And I was reading, I'm, I, I am reading, currently reading a book with a group of pastors. We've been reading different books over a period of time. We're reading a book now called Whatever Happened to Hell by a guy named John Blanchard. And, and I know that doesn't sound like it even fits in this sermon, but, but, but it really does because this guy, as he, did, as he builds out his doctrine of hell, and our, our resistance to talk about it really writes a chapter about the image of God in man. And I came across a paragraph, and it's, it's helped me. It's the most concise and yet comprehensive paragraph that I've ever read on what it is to be created in the image of God. So I'm just going to read it to you. It's long, and just, just bear with me. The words will be on the screen. I would encourage you, read along and think on the words. Don't let yourself be distracted here. It's important. It's It's foundational. John Blanchard writes this in in, in the book, Whatever Happened to Hell, he says, Being created in the image or likeness of God does not mean that man was made the same size or shape as God. God is spirit and has neither size nor shape. Nor does it mean that um, that, that man was a miniature of God, possessing all his qualities in small quantities. So we hear what it's not. What it does mean is that without being divine, man was created with qualities which enabled him to enjoy a living relationship with his maker and to be and to do in a finite way what God is and does in an infinite way. Now just stop and consider that for a second because here's the thing is is we aren't to God as an ant is to man. No, we might think that because, oh, ants, you know, compared to us cognitively, there's all these... it's not a good indication because an ant isn't the image of man, right? Cognitively, so infinitely, in his infinity and in our finiteness, there, 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 there might be some level of connection there, but it doesn't clearly get it. We were created in his image that we might actually enter into and enjoy relationship with him, a relationship that's deeper than a dog to its master. A relationship that's deeper than, 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 than a pet would be to, to one we love or, or to, to someone it loves. 
This is a relationship of knowing and being known. Knowing him and, and him fully knowing us and us beginning to know him. And because we know him, knowing us. This is so much bigger, so much broader. And on an infinite scale, he has this power and capacity that he gives us purpose. And he says, now you're going to be like me. You're going to rule over the earth. You're going to be the peak, uh, peak person, the peak creature. But you're not just any other animal. You're not just another animal roaming the earth. You are my representative. You are like me. You represent me in the world, and you will do under my authority, under my ownership, you will do what I do over the created order. We were created for this, and he builds his image in us that we might enjoy relationship, living relationship with him. He goes on, John Blanchard goes on, man was not created with the image of God, as if this were something tacked on. But in the image of God, the image of God is not telling us, listen, this is important. This is a primary sentence in in this perspective. The image of God is not telling us something about man's equipment, but his identity. The Bible is clear on this and even goes so far as to say that man is the image of God. Of God, something said of no other part of creation. Being made in the image of God is what makes man man. If we remove his image, we're not even who we think we are. Being made in the image of God is what makes man. Man, to put it as simply as possible, man was created as an intelligent, rational, personal, moral, and spiritual being, as a visible replica of God. You and I, we can't create images of God. But God has every right to create a man and create a woman and say they're created in my image. Well, but wait a minute. So, so Adam and Eve were created in his image, but then they sinned. Like Genesis 1 and 2 happened, but then, oh man, Genesis 3 happens and sin comes along. What? Do we still bear his image? Does his image then still imply ownership and responsibility? His ownership, our responsibility. Yes. God's image is retained in mankind even in sin, Genesis 9, 6. Well after the fall, just in case you want a timeline. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Even fallen man. All of mankind, even in sin. And it continues on. This is a biblical perspective from start to finish. There's other places in Genesis I could show you. But let's just jump to the other end of the Bible. James chapter 3, 9. We bless, with it we bless the Lord. He's talking about our tongues. Like the words we say, the things that we say. He says we bless With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. It's lasting. It's intrinsic. Now, there's a number of different ways that this plays out. There's a number of different ways theologians have described what they, what, what's happened. Like they're always looking for a way to describe it so it's, uh, it, it's understandable. So that some will say it's, it's the image of God is marred or the image of God is tarnished or the image of God is distorted. But, but as I've come to understand, as I've come to think about it, I would say it this way, it's the image of God has been displaced. The image of God is no longer the central identifying factor that we find ourselves or define ourselves by. 
We're more quick to define ourselves in some sort of vocation, some sort of purpose, some sort of a relationship other than him. We don't recognize ourselves as the image of God. And as a result, every other sin comes out. Every other sin proceeds from that place. <laughs> Whether we like it or not. Whether we want it or not. Whether we would willingly submit to it or not. We are created in God's image. Every last sinner sitting in this room bears his image. And so does every other sinner in the city of Springfield. And so does every other city or sinner in the, in the nation of, uh, uh, in our United States. So does our president. So does our Congress. So does, a, so does every other ruling authority in this world. Every other sinner that exercises authority bears God's image image just like you and I and that image comes with responsibility bearing God's image affirms God's ownership of all people and makes all people responsible to him it comes with responsibility God's image in us demands allegiance not treachery look at these look at the way these people treated Jesus look at the way they looked at Jesus they sent spies in. Oh, we're too cowardly to, to take our stand in front of him. We're too cowardly to put ourselves at risk because we don't want to die for what we believe. So let's figure out a way to blame Rome. So let's send spies in who are covert, who are acting treacherously towards him. He is the, he, he is the God whose image we bear. He demands our allegiance. His image in us demands our allegiance to him. Allegiance is to, to God is primary. It's, it's the primary piece of all the, all, all the other allegiances we hold. He's first. He has to be first. If you align yourself with any other thing, you miss it. The, the spies, they align themselves in, in allegiance with the Jewish leadership. The Jewish leadership align themselves in, 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 in allegiance to each other. And they missed it. In terms of today, where we align ourselves as Republican or Democrat before we align ourselves in the image of God. And we miss it. We align ourselves with, with certain leaders over others. Instead of God. And we miss it. Our allegiance to him is primary, it's first, and it has implications for every other allegiance or every other every other. Uh, uh, priority we set or every other allegiance we make. You see, it's, it's not wrong to consider yourself American. It's not wrong to decide you want to be a Republican or a Democrat. What's wrong is to do that without considering that you're first and foremost created in the image of God. And yet, we all struggle with this. These Jewish leaders, they were so entrenched in their own identities as, as Jewish leaders, they could not align themselves with Jesus, so they acted treacherously instead of aligning themselves with him. And they acted treacherously because they were scared to death they were going to lose everything if they followed him. But Jesus says, you, you die to gain. You, you let go to gain. You, you die to to live. You give up your own identity. You die to that old person. 
That allegiance to God, that primary allegiance to God, then, then, then has implications over every other allegiance. And specifically, we see it kind of play out with government here. Like they're questioning on how, how committed they are to be to their government or how, how far they're supposed to go under the rule of Caesar. But allegiance to God determines how we are to react in, in, to his delegated authority in the world. Like it determines how we're supposed to react in these situations. And, and the reality, this isn't the first time they've been here. When you think of the history of the Jews, so here they're under Rome's rule because of God's judgment. Just like they were under Babylonian rule, just like they were under Assyrian rule, just like as you read back all the way back into Exodus, you can see that they're under Pharaoh's rule, not simply because they messed up, but because God determined to rise up Pharaoh to demonstrate his glory. He put Israel in oppression that he might demonstrate his glory through Pharaoh. He he is delegating authority, and he calls his people created in his image to submit to that authority. In fact, this is a perspective that the church picked up on. Paul writing to the church in Rome, who, by the way, is still ruled by Caesar at Paul's time. Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. He's writing this to the church under Caesar's rule. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. They didn't like Caesar. They thought Caesar was evil. Caesar was not a good guy. None of them were really. But God raised him to power for a purpose. In current day, you may not like Donald Trump. You may not like your, your, your senators. You may not like your your um, state representatives, you may not like your governor, you may not like your city leadership. But so long as they're not commanding you to disobey God's, or, 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 or act in, in uh, a treachery towards God's image in you, as long as they are not commanding you to, to dishonor God, they're instituted by God. Peter also wrote about this. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13, all the way through 3, 7 demonstrates that there's implications for us submitting to God's authority through his delegated authority to emperors first, to masters. And, and just so you know, I mean, you, I would encourage you to go and read it, but he doesn't say the emperors that you approve of or the emperor that you voted for or the, or, or, or the master that you would choose and that's nice to you. He actually says it's gl more glorifying to God. In fact, he says it's not as glorifying to God if you submit to a master who's easy to submit to, but it's more glorifying to God to submit to the master who is harsh towards you. So all of you with a boss that you just can't stand because he's not a nice guy. Glorify God. Submit to the delegated authority in the image bearer before you. The implications are complete. All the way into marriages and into families. Husbands and wives and wives and our parents to children. Allegiance to God determines how we react to his delegated authority, but allegiance to God also determines how we are to exercise his delegated authority. Ephesians 5, husbands to wives. He calls the wives to submit and the husbands to love the wife as Christ loved the church. The wives, the reality is this. If, if, you, if you're not going to submit to your husband, you're not, gonna submit, you're not submitting to God. You, can, you, you might be able to submit to your husband and not submit to God. You might be able to submit to the government and not submit to God, but you cannot submit to God without submitting to those he places in authority over you. So wives, if you won't submit to your husband, not the husband you want, but the husband you have, then, then you're not just not submitting to your husband, you're not submitting to God. 
But, but, and I'm be careful, husband says, I'm saying that, I'm not giving you every right to do what you want to do. If you're not exercising the authority God has given you towards the image bearer in your life, as an image bearer, you are no better. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. It has implications for how we submit to authority and how we exercise authority. And, and Paul, he goes on through this. He starts with the church. He moves to husbands and wives. He talks to parents and children and masters to servants. Peter, starting with the emperor, works all the way through saying the same thing. Government has a purpose in God's sight. And so long as they don't command us to dishonor God, we're called to submit. And so he tells them, give that denarius to Caesar because it belongs to Caesar. He has the right to it, but give to God what is God. Give him your allegiance, your primary allegiance. And when you give him your primary allegiance, everything else will follow. God's image in us demands allegiance, not treachery. God's image in us demands sincere praise, not empty flattery. These spies, they come in and they put on a show. And they tell Jesus, they they sugarcoat him. Oh, we love what you say. Feels so good to hear you talk the truth. We know you're from God. It's empty. It's as empty as they're following him. I appreciate R. Kent Hughes says this flattery is the reverse or mirror image of gossip. Gossip involves saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his face. Flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind his back. I like flattery. In fact, I'm usually pretty satisfied with flattery. I don't want to hear what you think of me if it's poor. You tell me all the good things you want. I'll eat it up. Jesus, God's image in us deserves so much more than just empty flattery. It demands sincere praise. I wonder sometimes if as we gather and sing these songs, if we're not setting each other up for failure. I mean, we've already sung songs that speak to his goodness and his grace and the power of his gospel. But I wonder how many of us are going to demonstrate that with the rest of our life. He got my 45 minutes. I mean, what more does he need? What more does he want? I'm all about talking good about Jesus while I'm at church. But nobody's going to hear me say a thing about him when I'm not there. I'm guilty of saying all kinds of things in front of Jesus that I would never say when I'm not. His image in us demands it. It deserves it. He's the creator of all things. He's not just the creator. He's the creator that determined to be a savior. And Jesus is standing there. Jesus is standing there in the flesh. God in flesh. And all they have for him is empty words. God's image in us demands humility, not arrogance. See, Jesus' answer does something else. It, it doesn't just put them in their place. It doesn't just confound them. It doesn't just silence them. It builds in dignity 
and humility, but they continue in rebellion. Dignity. They are over the created order. They are raised up. They are not just another animal. They are not a worm crawling around in the dirt. They are his creature created in his image. No other creature, no other species, no other, no other being has ever held that position. Not even the angels who fly around his throne and cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not even they carry the designation created in my image. Only you and me. That's it. There's such dignity there. There's so much blessing there. There's so much power there. We hold and carry and bear the image of the immortal, powerful God. But we aren't God. He's God. We're image bearers. No more than a reflection in the mirror. No more than your reflection in the mirror is is more powerful than you are we than God. No more than, than, than the image in the mirror can be itself without you. Can we be without God? We are who we are because of him. I think it was Alistair Begg, I can't remember, but I think, I'm pretty sure it was Alistair Begg that, that I heard say one time that, that in, in the beginning, God made man in his own image. But since the fall, we've been trying to return the favor. Like we've been trying to recreate him in our image, forgetting that we are in his. These Jews, these spies, and anyone who would seek to jettison Jesus from their lives, that's arrogance. His image in us demands allegiance. How then? How? How can we? How can we? How? If if these Jews who had the scriptures, if these Jews who had the patriarchs, if these Jews who had the prophets, if these Jews who were standing there before Jesus, seeing him with their own eyes, hearing him with their own eyes, if they can miss him, if they can reject him, how do we keep from this mistake? How do we not make the same mistake as they did? Because God's image is being renewed in his people through the gospel. It's a work he's doing in you. You see, the gospel is, the, the, the good news is this, is that, is that not only does his ownership of us bring responsibility to us, it also brings blessing. He looked at us and loved us. Colossians 3, 9 and 10, Paul Paul writing, he says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, just look at that. I mean, he's giving them some expectation. He's putting on them a commandment. He's saying, don't lie to one another. Put Put off the old self. Put on the new self. And what is that new self? The new self is, is the person being renewed. In, the, in knowledge, after the image of its creator. That's a passive work for us. That's a passive work on us. We're responsible to live like it, but, but it's a passive work that's being done to us. God is at work renewing his image in us. He's not just polishing it out. He's bringing it back front and center. He's helping us see that we are his, created in his image. Paul, again, writing to the church in Rome, Rome Romans chapter 8, 29 through 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also pre- predestined to be what? 
conformed to the image of his son. God saved us, not just simply to say you're saved, but to put his image back in you in the right place, in the right priority. He put his image on you by the good news of his son, Jesus Christ. He, he says, this is what I'm doing. I predestined you for this reason, that my image might be central to your identity and then you might live like it. In order that he, Jesus, be the firstborn among many brothers, those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. The gospel tells us, the gospel promises us that not only are we created in his image and bear responsibility to him, but the gospel promises us that we are being blessed by the very fact that his image is being renewed in us, being put back front and center, being brought out of place and put back in place. Bearing God's image affirms God's ownership of all people and makes all people responsible to him. But it blesses all of those who would come and rather than go silent before him, would fall in praise and worship to the God who created and chose to save. So know the gospel. Know it. Know, know, know the basics of it, that God created us in his image. We fell, and he sent his son to die in our place for our sins. And he rose, securing for us eternal life forever in the presence of this God. But know the depths of it. Know the basics, but know the depths of it. Know the God of the gospel, because when you know the God of the gospel, that's where you'll begin to know yourself. So who or what holds your allegiance? Who gets your sincere praise? And who empowers our humility and our dignity? Is it the God who created you in his image? Or is it something else? Let's pray. Father, we are undeserving, needy, unworthy rebels. Apart from Christ, that's all we'll ever be. But by Christ, you've called us your child. You've restored and are renewing your image in us. So that when you see us, you, you don't see, you don't see rebels. You see your innocent children. Brothers and sisters of the firstborn, Jesus Christ. Would you move on us, your people? Enable us to, to walk in accordance with the very fact that we are created and bear your image. And so does every other person that we react and interact with. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.